Our whole reason for being uh, was Pure J is not to compete with Cell or Nature Science, but rather lower the cost, lower the cost of publishing, and lower the the amount of time it takes to publish. So speed up the, the publication cycle. Those are our basic missions, and we're trying to do all we can to to um, fulfill that mission. Good morning, good afternoon, welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers at Northeastern University and a very special guest today, Jason Hoyt, who is the founder and CEO of PeerJ, an award-winning biological and medical sciences journal. Jason, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much for inviting me. I should say co-founder as well, uh, Peter Benfield. Peter Benfield is the co-founder from PLOS One originally. Ah. Now, for the listeners that may not have heard of PeerJ, but I'm sure most of them have, uh, could you explain the journal's model? PeerJ is an open access, uh, peer-reviewed publisher, and we have two peer-reviewed journals at the moment in Biology, Life Sciences, Medicine, and then a second journal in uh, Computer Science. Uh, and we've, we also introduced preprints for biology originally back in 2013. And... Uh, a lot of people these days are familiar with uh, APCs, article processing charges, when paying for open access. Either they pay for it themselves out of uh, grant or out of pocket, or library might pay for it, or department grant, something like that. Um, we we took, a, at the beginning, a, a different take on the APC where uh, money was still required, of course, for the, the open access charges, but we did a lifetime publishing deal um, starting at $99 per author, uh, and that would grant the rights of one publication per year for the rest of your academic career. Uh, and I think that's how a lot of people heard about us in the beginning, beginning being 2012 now, so five years ago. And, and I, go ahead. Go, go on. You, you go on. <laughs> well, I, I mean, other than that, I mean, we had a uh, interesting business model, but other than that, it's pretty much traditional uh, journal publishing, where it's peer-reviewed, single-blind. Uh, the reviews happen before it's published, uh, not post-publication review. Although uh, reviewers and authors have the option to make their reviews public once it, it is finally accepted for publication, uh, and, and that's pretty much the only difference. Okay, and and what drove you to start PJ in the first place? Uh, well, so at the time I was working at Mendeley, and this is before Mendeley was sold to Elsevier, uh, 2011, and uh, some some bad stuff had happened, and in fact I wrote a blog post about this on my, my blog, um, some bad stuff happened with Elsevier, and that really uh, just got me so angry that publishers had so much control over the system that they could tell us what to do with full text and uh, reference lists. And I decided, well, whatever job I have next after Mendeley, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I'm not going to allow a publisher to tell me what to do. So what's the best way to do that other than start your own publishing company? So now I'm the publisher. Uh, and so, <laughs> so any, any stupid decisions are at least my fault when it comes to uh, publishing <laughs> and copyrights and full text and, and all that. Um, but, uh, you know, and, 
there was obviously open access, um, PLOS being the biggest example at the time in BMC. Um, but they had started their models uh, 10 years previously, uh, or mm. 15 years previously with BMC. And uh, I thought it was quite expensive. And I thought, well, certainly it could be done for cheaper uh, than what these open access uh, publishers are charging, uh, whether they're nonprofit, profit, or whatever. Um, mm. Now, most open access journals actually don't charge a lot, uh, anything, in fact. But most people also don't know th about those open access journals. Uh, they're very, very small. They're publishing a couple of pubs per year. Uh, nothing on the order of, of the big publishing houses. Um, so all the big publishing houses charge something, and they charge quite a bit. So the question was, how low could we go? Um, let's set a price and just go for it. Let's see if we can uh, build the tools and hire the people necessary to do all that. Um, yeah, uh, that's 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 how I remember when uh, the the initial conception of PJ thinking. You've got a backend that's probably really similar to Plus One, considering if you you had one of the plus one team that was uh, involved in the conception but it, 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 it after that it becomes a matter of surely we can do housing and databasing and access and all the other back-end stuff that happens on a journal for less money than that APC is originally designed to support yeah well so um I know you guys want to talk a little bit about the sausage making that goes on behind the scenes mm. with, with publishing. God, yes. So, uh, <laughs> uh, in reality, no one wants to know how the sausage is made, do they? But uh, it is interesting. Uh, so, one of the first decisions we made was to build the technology all in house rather than outsource um, to different vendors for the submission system, the review uh, system, and the publishing system. Um, okay. Typically, those are uh, broken out into two or three different vendors. Uh, for each major publishing house. Um, so they don't do any of the technology themselves, really. Um, they'll have developers on hand, software engineers, to do uh, uh, bits and bobs with APIs of these different vendor systems and maybe create new templates, uh, rescan something on, for instance, the Highwire system, uh, which is Highwire's uh, host a lot of publications, a lot of the academic literature in the world. Uh, hmm. They have. It's it's not so much either that they're extremely expensive. They are. They can be expensive. The main problem, though, is uh, being able to rapidly develop and iterate and uh, uh, change uh, the UI. It can take you know 18 months because these vendors are dealing with thousands of different journals and publishers, uh, and so they have a massive queue uh, and a priority list, and so it can be very difficult especially as a, a new small publisher, to get your change requests through and, and design things how you want it to be designed. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, you know, I had a technical background, um, uh, did programming in my actual academic research, and so started coding up the stuff myself, and then we hired some uh, developers to help us along, and you know, the rest is history. So uh, I think we've built a pretty nice system that most people mm. agree with. Uh, people are actually, sometimes we get people quite angry. They're, they're used to the, the shitty systems of other publishers for submitting <laughs> manuscripts, and they don't know oh, how, yeah. right? They're expecting some, something that works in Internet Explorer 7, uh, not something uh. that's you know, a little more updated with 
the user experience, and they don't know how to handle that. It uh, can be unexpected. So, <laughs> most, I think almost most so people are quite you get, surprised. You, you get old people writing to you going, what, what, what have you done? My user experience is too nice. I'm used to being confused well. at this point. My, my browser from 1985 doesn't work anymore. What the hell do you people think you're doing? Yeah, you wouldn't believe how many people on Internet Explorer 7 and 8 still in the world, but uh, yeah, academics. Yeah, you'd think of all people, you'd be on the latest browser, but no. Nope. No, no, it def it definitely doesn't work like that. This is uh, the 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 leather patches people still run a worrying part of the <laughs> of the academic world. Yeah. There's plenty of leather patches left behind. Um, so is that to, so like so to to sum up for people who don't follow computer related details, instead of having a patchwork of different functions to make the 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 digital instantiation of the journal that came from a bunch of different companies that all had to be integrated and sewn together that are updated slowly um you looked at those functions and said this isn't that hard and you essentially wrote them yourself from scratch yeah well <laughs> it's not that hard no uh it's definitely difficult because there are a lot of nuances to get right but um oh, the, for sure the the traditional way is to outsource these legacy systems, and what you're also doing then is outsourcing your user experience and develop, uh, you know creating a uh, a poor user experience because of that. Your yes. user experience from the 1990s. Okay, so do you do you have a lot of sympathy when it, there's one one thing that people say who are in traditional publishing and they go, oh yes, obviously uh, everyone knows now the the thing the government pays researchers uh, produce research, researchers give it away for free, and then journals sell it back to people. Um, one of the things that is always the line, anyone who's in legacy publishing, they've all they've all learnt this like talking parrots, and every single person says. You have absolutely no idea the amount of value we add when you're not looking. We're all we're all in there. We're all in there adding value left, right, and center. Um, what's what's your what's your what's your take on the continue? Look, there's there's some things that have to be done as a, the publisher actually has to do. I mean, things have to be typeset properly. They probably have to be copy edited at least to some degree. Uh, they have to be correctly formatted and disseminated in dumbass PDFs that everyone should hate. Um, not showing my hand there at all. Um, how do you? What's what's your response to? Oh, look at all the value we we add. Do you, is is that a is that a reasonable? Are, are they doing things behind the scenes that we're not familiar, or is this just a trope? Well, first, it, it is a very complicated issue, and there are many different academics out there who uh, some agree with the value that's being added by publishers, some don't. Um, it, there's a whole spectrum of academics of what they think about publishers. Some don't care at all about peer review. Some, in fact, probably most do care about peer review and quality of copy editing and, and quality typesetting. Um, you know, there's, there's different factions out there. Uh, and so you can certainly understand the point of view of uh, the very vocal critics who don't care so much about peer review or copy editing. They just want to pre-print and they think, oh, it's good enough just to get it out on your own blog or something. And so for those people, they definitely don't see the value in publishers and, you know, you kind of see their point, I suppose. Um, but on the other hand, uh, uh, publishers add value, be uh, you know, as I said in that surprising tweet storm that uh, got picked up quite a bit. Um, that was awesome. It's very, 
it's very difficult to get reviewers to hand their reviews in in a, in a timely manner. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw you, you post a stat that um, almost 75% of the reviewers in PJ get back within two weeks. Now, that's... Uh, that's that's amazing. Yeah, so uh, it's about ten days for seventy five percent, and then ninety uh, percent within I think nineteen or eighteen days, something like that. And then it, you know, there's a long tail. Um, how, how do you do it? Um, well, I think uh, a lot of publishers they're, they're probably not too far off from our from our data, um, but we just have a, a series of automated chasers that go out. We also have manual chasers, so staff. Also follow up uh, when you know there we have one outstanding review and that's all we need to be able to move on with a decision. And ch- uh, staff will manually follow up with that. Uh, we try to uh, important things are to verify the reviewers and a lot of that is automated. Uh, you know, are these people re- real? Uh, that does take some time as well. Uh, we we have several different tools uh, that we provide the academic editors to try to source reviewer names as well and speed that up and, mm. and try to give them names that are most likely to accept the invitation in the first place um, and throw out the bad actors. Um, so, but, but to go back to the, to the value question, um, certainly I, I think publishers add value. And so the, the next question, though, is, well, what, what's that value worth? And are you paying the right price for that value add? Um, you know, if uh, it, you're taking a mobile phone, you know, Android phone versus iPhone, uh, some people will value those differently, the different feature sets. And so for some people, that's far too much to pay. For others, it's fine. And so uh, that's the question to answer. Um, the problem, though, uh, with academic publishing versus other markets versus, for instance, the phone market, the mobile phone market, is that it's a very inelastic market that uh, it has complicated payment models where, uh, at least with subscri- subscriptions, the, the librarians usually are the ones buying the subscriptions. And so the academics who are reading that are uh, one step removed from having to pay for the, the journals. And so they don't really get involved in those complicated negotiations. They don't know how much it costs to, to maintain all the journals. Um, and so the publishers, some of them, can keep jacking up the price on the librarians and you know putting the thumb screws down on them uh, because they know the academics will keep demanding it from the librarians, and if the librarians don't capitulate, they'll they'll be out of their jobs. So librarians are kind of screwed with their job position for for a lot of the subscription uh, business models. Yeah, they're uh, being kind of leveraged, aren't they? Yeah, uh, and so you know this goes back to the whole value add. Well, yes, they're adding value, but they're perhaps extracting too much value uh, versus uh, what other industries can do. Um, but at the same time, I mean, that's sort of their job. Whether you're nonprofit or for-profit, they want to make money, and they're going to just do what the market allows them to do. Uh, and so what that whole Twitter storm was about, and I, most people just ignore me on Twitter, so I have no idea why that you know, took off like it did. For Daniel Larkins. Yeah, I thought I thought it was going to touch a nerve, insulting uh, scientists. It really did. I think it's over two hundred retweets now. Yeah, I thought scientists were going to be upset with me for saying, you know, they're the ones that fall. No, uh, no, it's these kids. It, this is a, this is a this is a the not my not my garden kind of effect. Everyone assumes everyone is when you go, ah, oh, scientists are the problem. But scientists to look at it and go, yeah, other scientists are the problem. 
Yeah, pretty much. But look, your your, your essential essential point of all that was is like uh, the 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 line that I particularly liked is you said, uh, "Look, we've got we've got nice things. That, like we we're not we don't allow ourselves to have nice things. Is that we've got we've got a model of this together that works a lot better, and the lack of traction is related to the individual decisions that scientists make. And like publishers aren't some wacky." unknown quantity they're going to do what they do and when you've been offered with an alternative and you don't accept it then it's really difficult to listen to the entirety of the problem rests with publishers yeah i mean very few individuals are altruistic right and uh even fewer organizations will be altruistic they're not going to lower their prices uh just because we're shouting about it and boycotting them uh and and so it's one thing you know, we should st still boycott. We should still complain about the prices, but we have to be doing more. It can't just be mm. uh, expecting the publishers to change their prices and change their practices. Scientists have to start changing their practices, their culture of the impact factor dependence uh, and and prestige. If we if we want to uh, change the the problems with copyright, with uh, subscriptions, and with prices. Um, yeah. And one of the things that you pointed to is that um, quite a lot of the issues are with, with tenure committees, with, with grant funding agencies who, um, you know, for, for lack of time or just for, for, for laziness, rather than actually focusing on papers, they just focus on the impact factors. So a lot of, a lot of the onus actually sits with these committees, um, which makes it pretty tricky to actually change because a lot of people, uh, particularly a lot of our listeners, are more early career researchers. How do you think would be the best way to actually action this change when a lot of it is it just a big bottleneck for these uh, committees, which tend to be, you know, filled with more senior types? Well, first, I suppose it sounds like a big broad stroke to paint every uh, committee uh, as looking at the impact factor only, and there's certainly ones that don't, and they're they're starting to change, and people point that out, and of course, but I think still it's the mainstream committee, hiring committee, or grant funding agency that uh, doesn't. Um, uh, look at more at the individual paper and, and does just use the impact factor as a lazy metric. How do we change um, the local university committee, uh, hiring committee? I, uh, that's very difficult. Um, you know, a lot of them are, I, I suppose they use the impact factor as a parameter for judging how, uh, how successful uh, an academic might be able to get a grant in the future uh, because they know that the grant committees are looking at this information as well. And, and so perhaps it needs to start really from the top. You know, uh, we could start with the NIH and Francis Collins coming out and you know, using his position to, to say, look, enough is enough. We have, to stop, we have to stop looking at the names and titles of the journals and rather dig more into the, the articles. Um, you know, there is some movement from certain funding agencies uh, uh, in that regard. You know, the Gates Foundation is doing that, although they're, they're not the bulk of uh, life science funding in the United States and the yeah. world. Uh, in the UK, um, the Research Welcome. Excellence Framework, um, well, the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, which uh, governs uh, the funding for all the different universities in the UK, has decided in their assessments they, they don't want to be looking at impact factors. Um, uh, but I think there's uh, some still some problems there I've heard about. Um, so there is some movements, but it really, I think it has to start up at the top because the lower grant uh, or uh, tenure hiring committees in the universities are just following the lead of the grants um, and doing what they think can, can get the grants at the end of the day. 
Yeah. Yeah, fan, fan, fantastic. It's a uh, it. It feels like there's an awful you say that there's a no no actors within this system are truly altruistic. I mean, if there's one thing that's beaten out of you as an early career researcher, it's looking at it. it look looking at how do I how do I best represent the value of what I'm creating for everyone else? You are perpetually flicked on the back of the ear and told to perform a series of practices to maximize your utility as a hireable slash employable scientist person and that goes that goes really deep and if you if you someone who's telling you that if you tell them that's not how i see it there's a sense of i'm I'm trying to help you. You 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 do know you do know I'm trying to be useful here. I'm trying to give you good advice. It's going to make sure that you aren't starving in a gutter or working for a corporation that you hate. Is I've, I've I'm on I'm on your side. I'm telling you how to win the game. And uh, people are senior senior people that you will talk to are occasionally very unwilling to hear the sentence. The game sucks. We should probably not do that. No, I mean they went through it themselves, and so. You know, it's it's in their past, and so uh, yeah, exactly. It, beca- it does become self-justifying. It's, well, you know, I I did it, and it worked out, so it can't be all bad. It can't be a terrible idea because obviously I thrived, and we all agree I'm fantastic. Um, <laughs> it's a, I I signed up for. I'm actually a. Uh, I have an investigator plan at PJ, um, which I. I got as a as a still as a graduate student when you said this is like how it's going to work and we were all quite excited about it. So even even in Australian dollars, I paid I think three hundred for the the, the original one. Uh, unlimited because um, I just publishing yeah yeah pretty much. Now you want to know how many papers I've published in it? I looked I looked you up for, with a zero. I think it is. You started one. Yeah yeah none. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know do you know why? Because <laughs> I can't. I can't get other people. I can't get other people. A lot of the times, so if um, a lot of the stuff that, I, especially in the last few years, that I've been working on, are data-based problems. I'm getting data from somewhere. I'm coming up with an idea. I'm also employed by someone at this point in time. I have probably somewhere between three to six other people who need to be on any individual project, and. That people seem to have this weird resistance of I will go into my grant funds or my committee or God forbid my own money the same way I did when I didn't have a great deal of it and become a member of this become a member of this thing um, you say, well it's not only, is it only $99 you could probably access it from the structural funding you have available for publishing I don't think a lot of grants are going to go like hmm is that a personal plan for you or oh, we can't possibly do that they should be happy that it's only 100 fucking dollars it's just uh it's so much less than a normal apc and your full apc for just publishing is only what 900 or something yeah we have a, a lot of discounts so uh, yeah it's, it's, i'm saying is if 20 people turn up as opposed to like everyone gets a membership and we need to coordinate that just throw down the money to publish it the way you would in uh, plus one or e-life or anything else um is still like half of what most other journals are actually charging so the res- the resistance has raised my that i'm getting from other people it's just raised my blood pressure horribly um and i don't i don't understand i don't understand the resistance to the 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 individual model I, the first thing that i thought was that that's awesome i can take responsibility for paying for my own publication stuff 
until the end of time. This is very obviously a real journal. Um, I don't see any problems with it. I see you see what's going on. You see the kind of stuff that's being published. I mean, there's an awful lot of ecology for some reason. But uh, some of the computer science papers have been really good. Some of them are directly relevant to some things that I've done. So I wonder what the resistance is when people see that it's a program. It is a, a plan for you individually. I don't know why that would be a cog in anyone's gears. Well, I mean the impact factor, right? So you know, it takes years to. Uh, get an impact factor, and PureJ has one now. Uh, but it's, oh, really? it's, it's still not. Uh, yeah, we've, uh, for we got our first one two years ago. Oh, okay. That shows how much attention I pay to that stuff. What what is it? Uh, to how many decimal places do you want? No, we, <laughs> Three. It's like no. two point one eight or something like that. Ah, oh, that's fine. The um, but I, I mean so. It's an okay impact factor, and depending on your field, that's a great impact factor. For a lot of fields, that's not a great impact factor, and so there's your resistance right there. Um, and even despite the impact factor, I mean, PureJ is still a fairly new name. It's been around five years, but uh, a lot of people know science and nature a lot more, right? And so those are going to be the, the first choices in anyone's, uh, any PI's uh, book of, of where to publish. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, so I mean, it, it just takes years to build up that prestige and that name factor and the impact factor uh, before your co-authors will start to turn over and agree with you to, to publish with Pure J. And fortunately, we have a lot of um, uh, uh, early adopters who are very optimistic about what we're doing and uh, sustaining uh, the organization. So, th thanks to them. I think it's excellent yeah. as well that you have the uh, the, the preprints. Um, was that there from the very beginning, or was that something that was um, no? Added that was added later. It, well, it was added uh, very early. So we started the first peer-reviewed articles came out February 2013, and we started the first preprints in April of 2013. Uh, oh, so, so pretty pretty soon. Just yeah. just after that, yeah, yeah. Uh, because at the time there there wasn't any um, biology related preprint service anymore nature had one called nature proceedings uh, yeah. and they they stopped doing that in 2010 or something like that and we thought maybe now is the right time for preprints in biology and i think we were right uh, but uh maybe we're not the preprint service everyone wants these days uh, there's some other ones out there now of course so oh there's there's lots um my preprint that was very successful is with you because uh, you, you can damn sure talk people into leaving a preprint up and uh, any anywhere that's appropriate um yeah this is this is the original grim paper that uh, ended up in um uh spps the journal um and that was i'm i will entirely credit i will entirely credit the ability for that to get read and accessed with a lot of the eventual success of the journal article um because it actually looks it actually looks really good frankly but when you when you open it and you look at like this is this is how this is how it's been stuck up this is how it's been put together so that was may 23rd 2016 um we are at 9,000 views and 1,500 downloads. That's a lot. Yeah, and the and part of the reason for that is the fact that it looks awesome and it's accessible. And I really... The, the, the thing on the sidebar as well is like, have you shared this on all possible platforms? 
Have you uh, have you have you written a blog post? Have you emailed this to people? That is cool. Now I did I did all of those things without it having to ask me. But it's a it's a very it's a, it, it's you feel like finally there's a journal in the 21st century when it says welcome to your to do list. Have you put this on Twitter? Have you put this on Facebook? Have you emailed it? Have you written a blog post? I don't know about add to Wikipedia, but um, you can also stick it on your your repo. It's uh it's cool. I really I really like your platform. I don't think I have a point in this. I've just uh, I've been a I've been, I've been a fan of this your 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 journal group for a very long time. So well, this is uh well there's a lot of build up. A lot of build up to get that publication out there, and then it is a lot of work. And then authors forget that well, the job's not over after you've published. Right? Um, there's still things you can do to get attention of your article, and uh, authors want that distribution and want people to see it. And so a lot of that power is yeah, in their sure. own hands um, with yeah. what they can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, the the I don't feel like everything that I'm ever going to do needs to be pre-printed. But in the case of, especially in a paper like that, where you retain the nagging possibility you've done something really dumb. Preprints are seriously fantastic because it's such a good format to be able to collectively send it to people. It's mm-hmm. formatted and concise and available, and it has the imprimatur of being an article. Um, and we got an awful lot of good feedback after that, and no one said like, everything you've done is absolutely terrible. And uh, it's also it's also top advertising for anyone who might want to publish it afterwards. They can actually say, "Well, why don't you submit that to us?" That seems like something we'd be interested in. I like I like the inversion of that. I got to write more sole author papers so I can just send them to you guys. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's fantastic to see in the life sciences and uh, now more computer science related computational biology the preprints really taking off and changing what it means to uh, communicate science. Um, it's, and the very interesting thing is no one knows you know, how far that's going to go. Um, it prob- you know, mm. I don't think it's going to take over peer review. I think peer review will always be important, but uh, um, maybe, maybe this is something that helps lower the cost, the price, and uh, the other issues, uh, speed of communication. Uh, that we, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, back to your question about what can early career researchers do, the ECRs. I mean, that is a very tough position. And we do have some early adopter ECRs who have published with, with PeerJ. And, um, uh, you know, they're, they're very, uh, a very fabulous group to look at and, and why they're choosing to do that. Um, one one of them out of Cambridge University is Karina Logan, who's uh, a postdoc now, um, and she's very vocal in that uh, ECR community of publishing with open access venues, um, and she's got uh, I think a new some sort of new petition going on to um, which is another vocal petition against publishers in some way um, called Bad Science or something like that. People should check that out. Um, but there are ECRs that are um, uh, pulling out and going against the grain and uh, publishing in the early open access journals. And I don't know if all their careers are hurting. I think there's quite a few of them are doing quite well. Um, uh, you know, and there are senior academics who do support ECRs publishing in uh, open access journals. And you know. And more and more of those are, are becoming senior academics and it slowly slowly is changing. 
uh, and go seek those out. You know, the Eisen brothers, both Jonathan and uh, uh, Mike Eisen at UC Davis and uh, UC Berkeley are fantastic examples of early career researchers who, who decided to publish only open access and made the shift and transition quite well into becoming senior, mm. well-respected academics, full professors at their universities, um, and helping their students out. And uh, hopefully there's more models like them out there. Because that's the thing, a great paper is a great paper regardless. And I think, maybe I'm a bit too idealistic here, but I think the good papers actually rise to the top. Yes, I mean, after several years, you know, it doesn't matter where, where it's been published, the citations will uh, accrue. Uh, people, at the end, you know, they, they use uh, search aggregators, PubMed Central, for instance, or PubMed or Google Scholar. Um, that's yeah. how people at the, uh, find their literature um, years after it's published, not because they pull out uh, you know, a dusty copy of Nature magazine from their, their shelf from two years ago and, ah, there's that fantastic article. No, it's, they're going yeah, to the search sure. aggregators and finding it. And the search aggregators don't care about the title of the journal. Um, yeah. They're looking at their citations. And yeah, yeah like the, mo the moment it's indexed, it's on the same platform as everything else. Yeah, only, only very, very rarely do I actually open up a journal and read an issue of something and almost invariably it's a special edition on something that is sort of vaguely or peripherally interesting rather than sort of central to what I'm doing uh, but it's also it's just super uncommon the vast majority of stuff that Dan and I have been fiddling with different ways to make sure that we just get fire hosed with everything relevant to us at any given point in time and if I'm doing that out of uh, set RSS feeds or the PubMed crawler, it's always coming in because it's topic related or because it's got the right keywords. And it's never going, oh, you can't have that. Not, not that, that journal. journal. That's No, no, not him. What are you, what are you thinking, man? It's, you you don't have your impact never filter set uh, to reject all those. Impact filters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> impact filter. Yeah. Uh, Maybe 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 one good thing is uh, I, I think that PLOS One got an awful shot in the arm when Why Most Published Research Findings Are False got published um, simply because that was such a massive transformative paper that suddenly everyone had heard about because it made it to sort of critical critical mass in the mass media attention and collective conversation between uh, people who are supremely worried that science as an endeavor was basically banjaxed. Um, you, I don't know. Can you go out and commission some kind of unicorn paper like that? And get <laughs> What's Johnny Anita's doing these days? Maybe you can. Maybe he's got why all published research findings are actually true again. Um. <laughs> I, I wish it was that simple. Yeah, I wish we could just find that viral paper. And, <laughs> wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be handy? Yeah, yeah. It's getting that's getting into crystal ball territory. But um, I do think, seriously, as, a, uh, as, a, as an individual paper, if something like that happens, and the amount of attention that goes into it, it's probably the most, uh, people have had more attention to that than just about, it's got to be the sort of top 10 in the last 10 years or something, the papers that people have paid really, really close attention to. And I think it did a lot to legitimize the platform that it was, it was put out on. The fact that it felt it felt uh, it could be communicated quickly, that it it had a level of urgency to it. In fact, I think the paper and would have done could read it. much more. Yeah, it would have done much more poorly if it had actually been stuck in the 
you know, in, inter, international annals of metapsychological McBastard, whatever. I, it, it was the it's it's a great platform for something that is going to like wrench everyone's eyelids open like that. It would be nice if you could just go out and find that. Pull stuff. it out of our hat and publish that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, we've, we've no, had some I'm decent speculating papers. horribly now. You make you're making it sound like no one's heard of us, but <laughs> no, we've had we've, we've had a good number. I mean, we've had I don't know, uh, I think oh. nineteen thousand peer-reviewed authors so far, or something like that, and wow. and uh, nice the four years of publishing and five years since launch, um, and I don't know how many in the preprints. So. Uh, a lot of people, but it does surprise me still uh, how many people haven't heard of PeerJ. We, we go and do talks every now and then and do, do the show of hands, and a lot of people in the audience still haven't heard of PeerJ, which is surprising. Oh, but, uh, yeah, look, someone was, on, someone was on Twitter the other day saying, I was at a conference, there are 30 people in the room, and only me and one other person have heard of SciHub. There you are. So 28, 28 out of thirty. Um, look, when people when people don't listen in academia, they really don't listen. Yeah, I mean, Twitter is a bit of an echo chamber, and you you or bubble, yeah. right? And you got to realize um, we're very vocal on Twitter and some other platforms, but that's not mainstream academia. Mainstream academia just has their head down and following the rules, and you know, can't blame them. They're at the end of the day, they just want to. Uh, put food on the table and have a paycheck for their families as well and yeah, for do sure. whatever it's to... navigating a very difficult environment it's uh it's it, it doesn't yeah the problems don't go away because you feel like they should um can i ask you a, a don't don't uh don't like commit slander or anything like that what do you think of e-life as a journal uh gonna, i don't have my lawyer next to me so i don't know what qualifies as <laughs> slander you know, or not is slander though written or is it spoken? I don't know. But uh, oh, I can never remember the difference between those two either, which is a problem because I feel like I commit for you them especially, a lot. James. So again, so th- there's no black and white answer. Uh, on the one hand, eLife is fantastic. It's great. It's another open access platform. They're releasing a lot of open source code. Uh, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, though, I, I mean, their their premise is uh, they don't talk about the impact factor. They think. Cell, science, nature are terrible journals, glam journals are terrible, and yet uh, they're very restrictive in what they allow to be published. They're rejecting 90% of what comes to them, creating a glam journal themselves and with a high impact factor that costs a lot of money to publish. Um, and you know they've, they've gotten 40 million pounds or dollars, I don't know which it is, in funding over the last several years, and is that money being well spent? I, I you know, it's the funding agencies that uh, can spend the money how they want. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I personally think the sort of the mega journal model that uh, Peer J Plus One Scientific Reports does is perhaps uh, the more efficient one and the one we should all be going towards. And but it's of course natural that you know the world's not quite ready there to to adopt that type of a model yet. So. Um, the, model, sure. the model I'm talking about is, you know, uh, publishing uh, sound science, not just novel science, uh, which is what the glam journals are about, the novel science, uh, which often turns out to be wrong and retracted as well. But uh, hmm. so that's my answer. I hope, I I hope the lawyers aren't. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's a pretty right good now. answer. A, uh, most people I know who are in sort of bench science really like eLife. 
because I don't think you're absolutely right in the fact that this is a, even more than any other field. It is super big paper driven, super prestige driven. And people see that as such an inevitability that you don't get, you don't really get, I talk to an awful lot of people who are, who are my age, who are in, I mean, you're in gene therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who are in various, various, uh, various areas of, uh, physiology, uh, molecular biochem, etc., etc. The, the model that they have is so super caked in, it's still so incredibly important that if you're working on this project for two years, will you get a cell paper? Will that will that go to Neuron? Oh, that's only going to Journal of Neuroscience. Maybe I'll need another one. It's still so much bricks and mortar like that. They really like eLife just because it represents some kind of incremental change. And it still feels safe for them to publish in. It still tells them that they're a special pedal and they've got their special paper. So people still people still treat it with the same kind of uh, super journal sort of model. Yes, I got my paper into eLife. This is transformative. It will change my life and water my garden. But it's not it's not a different model. Like you said, it's not a different model of publication at all. Um, at the very least, it is it is a I think it's a it's a good looking journal. It's easy to access and it is open source. Absolutely, it's not so, it's not a hundred percent bad or a hundred percent good. There's fantastic things about it. Um, you know, it's the same way with Pure J. It's not we're not perfect either. The our whole reason for being uh, with Pure J is not to compete with Cell or Nature Science, but rather lower the cost, God, no. lower the cost of publishing and lower the the amount of time it takes to publish. So speed up the, the publication cycle. Those are our yeah, basic sure. missions, and we're trying to do all we can to to um, fulfill that mission. I think when we both read about, it, I remember talking to Dan about this actually many years ago. When we read when in your submission system, and it said, "Don't worry too much about pre-submission format. We're not going to send it back because the margins are wrong. Uh, a submission copy is just a submission heaven. copy. If we like it, we'll fix it up then. Send it in any format that's cogent, and maybe we can be friends." I think we both ran around the office going. <gasps> <laughs> why has no one why has no one ever said that to us before no reference formatting requirements uh, at all yeah so we'll do that oh, I, I, I mean it's all done um, programmatically these days so it's ridiculous that there's pre-submission requirements for the reference list yeah yeah for sure it's yeah, there's so many to doing that. Uh, yeah, him, him in him in particular, because like every everything that we've both collectively published is it's always it's always been you, Dan, <laughs> fixing <laughs> up every every time I used a semicolon instead of a Q, redacting all the swear words, taking out the slander. <laughs> yeah, it's um, I, I, it's one of those things that feels like a massive hangover from like print galleys and physical actual journals. Like color page charges and uh, like length length restrictions that are absolute. Although they can actually work out for you, where the paper that we have in your preprint journal that we we later uh, we we later sent to another journal uh, that's in PJ preprints, um, it ended up being they have a very strict five thousand word limit, and it came out at five thousand and seventeen or something. So they sent it back straight away. And then we uh we we made some edits until it was four thousand nine hundred and ninety three, <laughs> but 
but then when it gets sent for review and they say you have to add all this stuff you go we literally can't or we'll crash the server so you have to take your objections and pound sand because there's no room in the journal and they actually and it, it, that's that's exactly how it turned out it's like, well sorry mate there's space restrictions you can't add all that uh, you can't add extra analysis you can't do anything else there's literally no room so we're just going to have to take it as is this, the system works <laughs> now what are the um what are the what are the plans moving forward with PJ what's on the uh, what's on the horizon uh, well, we might add some new subject areas. We've had a lot of calls to add more subjects than to what we currently publish. Um, and, you know, we're looking for uh, more ways to, to make uh, editorial life easier for our ac- academic editors uh, so that hmm. they don't struggle to find re- peer reviewers so much. Um, we do are you st- use Publons to find reviewers? We, we do. We, that's one of our tools. Yeah. We have uh, several different tools that we use, uh, including some homegrown ones as well. But, um, oh, cool. Yeah. So uh, you really have to use all assets uh, you know, at hand to, to find reviewers these days. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we, there's still a, a lot to do to... Uh, we still want to lower prices. Um, we want to speed up the time that it takes to publish and still deliver quality reviews and, and all of that. Um, so that it's, I mean, it's, it's really finessing the system at this point, I guess, is our future plan. There's nothing huge that we're planning. Yeah, right. Just uh, keep keep on at the coalface. It's not. Uh, yeah, well, if you if you're trying to change the nature of something that badly needs changing, but it's a, it's it's interesting enough to us. This is my look. The the idea of having access to the journal is that the way it's outlined, the way it's supposed to work, is obviously when we when we came across that as even as students and people who were sort of pre postdoc it was you feel like you spend an enormous amount of time doing really stupid tasks and when someone waves a big flag and says hey you know stupid tasks are stupid you go can we can we be friends um that's really nice we'd 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 hope that that other people would agree with you so we didn't see it get all the traction it can get Hmm. um now one thing i want to talk to you about is um predatory journals now we obviously know that they're bad uh but uh (laughs) what are your thoughts around them and like is there any way that uh that we can actually stop their proliferation because I think a lot of a lot of researchers kind of look at that and go, oh, these are annoying because they fill my inbox with the uh, greetings for the day um, emails." But I think a bigger problem is they're just putting out a lot of junk science. What are your thoughts around uh, these predatory journals and and what we can do to actually you know limit them? Well, certainly, they're a problem. Uh, I don't know uh, for institutions, for example, in the U.S., how big of a problem that is in terms of being fooled into uh, suspecting that's legitimate research. Um, hopefully most people are going to legitimate sources to find their research, at least uh, aggregators like PubMed and uh, in the life sciences or um, I don't know exactly what types of filters Google Scholar has. So, I, I mean, perhaps first we should figure out like how pervasive the problem is. Um, but, I mean, uh, what do we do about it? Well, I mean, some would consider uh, subscription journals predatory as well. I mean, they're... They're holding librarians hostage with uh, subscription price increases, 
well beyond the rate of inflation every single year uh, and with the big bundles because uh, they can get away with it. And I mean, that's another type of predatory journal. Um, maybe we should start recognizing that aspect of predatory <laughs> publishing a little bit more as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It must well, be hard. Say, say you wanted to start a completely new journal right now in an environment where the vast majority of new journals, uh, the the you know, the the inter the international world journal of science and nature. Um, it must be it must be very difficult. I think you'd encounter a lot of cynicism if you're starting from scratch. You'd you'd have to have a very good network of people who take you seriously. Yeah, if you're if you're not a known brand already like a, a nature that can just launch their own new niche journal, uh, it's going to mm. be very difficult uh, to get build up, even with even if you're a well-known academic starting your own journal. It's extremely difficult, um, and it costs a ton. A lot of capital is needed to start a new journal. Um, and again, you know, in the internet era, it is a bit ridiculous that we have to have a different journal for every subject, uh, niche subject. Why can't it all just be a one big thing? That's. Mm. Well, it turns out that's what people don't want, right? Uh, they, they feel that it's easier to access. It's more of a community to have a niche journal, um, and uh, the, perhaps that's one another cultural um, speed bump we have to get over one of these days. Mm. Well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time, Jason, but we do want to finish up with two uh, two quick fire questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, since you started PeerJ, what have you changed your mind about with uh, academia? Well, I certainly, I thought more people would be price sensitive um, to, to, to publishing. And it turns out I was, I was wrong about that. There are uh, a number that are price sensitive, but it's a very inelastic market. What people are sensitive to, again, is the impact factor. But what was shocking was how many are more sensitive to the impact factor versus price. I thought people would see $99 hmm. and, and not everyone would run to that, but enough. Um, but it's tr turned out not to be true. Um, luckily, we've, you know, we've have lasted for five years and will continue to do that. And, you know, we're self-sustaining now. Um, and so the, the, my change of academia is, well, most academics more than I thought um, don't care about price whatsoever, sadly. Yeah. Mm. They don't want they don't mm. want the nice things like we said at the beginning. <laughs> yeah. And, Sorry, Dan, go on. And and second, uh, what is uh one book that you think everyone should read? Yes. Maybe two even. Right. So uh I wish I had read this. Uh it actually well, it, the uh the book called The Phoenix Project wasn't out when I was uh a, a researcher. But its predecessor, which was uh, published in the 80s and what it's based off of, is called The Goal. And these are actually kind of business books, uh, but they're written as a novel. Uh, and particularly, I would start with The Phoenix Project for graduate students uh, and ECRs. And although it's talking about IT and tech, whatever it is, it's written in a novel. And it's based on the theory of constraints, which we all have in our personal lives and our professional lives. The theory of constraints are what are the bottlenecks. Um, and identifying the bottlenecks in your research uh, and knocking those off one by one. So start with the biggest bottleneck. That might be, I don't know, maybe you don't get FaceTime with your PI as much as possible and that's slowing down your, your project. Um, knock that one off, figure that one out, and then go on to the next bottleneck and figure that out. Uh, and it's a, 
what it really does is help you create a framework for not doing your research or your business, but rather how to create a workflow for the stuff you do that just runs smoothly, uh, removes the bottlenecks, uh, takes out, um, speeds up the feedback loops, uh, which happens to be one of the reasons I got out of doing research. Uh, life science feedback loop is so long and fail after two years, right? <laughs> it's much faster mm. with programming. That's how I ended up in, in programming. But um, so figure out what are, how can you speed up the feedback loops? Uh, how can you continuously experiment on the framework of what you're doing um, and, and improve that? Um, uh, so I think a lot of people would would benefit from picking up that book or or the, its predecessor as well. Yeah, I'm interested. I'm going to go Google it straight afterwards. But we we will uh, put the links um, to um, to that uh, on the show notes on, online. And but I'm sure a lot of people will be interested in that. Um, but uh, thanks for thanks for joining us today, uh, uh, Jason. We'll definitely um, put. Um, links to everything that we've spoken about today um, if you are new to the show and it's the first time that you're listening make sure that you are following us on social media uh, on Twitter we are Hertz Podcast we're also on Facebook uh, you can find us just search Everything Hurts Podcast and you can also email us if you have any questions at everythinghurtspodcast at gmail.com keep the tweets coming in uh, getting a lot of uh, fantastic feedback from our recent uh, episode with Anne Scheel uh, people seem to be really enjoying it. Uh, some people are saying they're inspired by her story as an early career researcher and how she has been an um, open science advocate. So, yeah. Uh, yeah did keep hear the, that. Uh, Why don't people say that about us? That, yeah, I know. <laughs> no one's told, said that we're in sport. We're like 48 episodes in. Not not one of James and Dan are inspiring, but Anne comes on. But, of course, yeah, she's, she has a, well, a fantastic yeah, story. She there. also has the benefit of actually being inspiring. And, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. We, 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 we can't get that. But uh, thanks for thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back again soon. And uh, thank you, Jason, for coming thank on the you, show. Thank you, Jason. Welcome, and thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs>